The Senate says no to increasing minimum wage in the latest COVID relief. But was it a good idea in the first place? Walter Olson from the Cato Institute joins us to discuss the legal and policy implications. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Thank you for being here with us today. As some of you may have guessed from our intro, today's show is about the minimum wage and the efficacy thereof. But first, let's say thank you to our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's noted spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's welcome our guest, Walter Olson, senior fellow from the Cato Institute. He returns. Welcome back to the show, sir. Well, thank you, Lawrence. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being here. You know, this seems to come up uh, fairly often uh, in recent years about increasing the federal minimum wage. I want to roadmap out our, our topics today. I want to, you know, first start with just sort of the legal aspects of the minimum wage, you know, sort of state versus Fed, you know, which rate applies and then when does it apply? Who does it apply to? And then at the backside of the show, I want to close out with some policy considerations for people to think about uh, as we continue our discussion about the uh, the federal minimum wage and a possible increase. I, I know it went down in the COVID bill. The Senate decided not to do it, but I have a feeling, I have a feeling that it may return relatively soon for uh, future consideration. But before we get to that, Walter, you know, what I want to do just to provide a little greater context, you know, would you mind giving us the history of the federal minimum wage? I know it's a, a creature of the 20th century early, started with the states and eventually the federal government picked it up. But can you give us like maybe in a minute or so, just a brief history of the federal minimum wage? Yes, we've had a federal minimum wage since 1938 with the Fair Labor Standards Act. And it was, of course, the topic of a lot of debate in the 30s and really continuously since then. There has not been a period where there has not been big debate about the minimum wage. And it went up numerically, of course, in stages over the years, started at 25 cents an hour and uh, has gone up, of course, a lot since then. But a lot of the debates have also been about expanding the coverage. In the 1960s, for example, retailers, many of which had not been covered, hotels and motels, dry cleaners, a lot uh, later on hospitals and schools when they were state employees, these had originally been exempted. Uh, it had been much more targeted toward manufacturing. And the trend over the years has been to cover more and more different sectors of the economy so that the debate extends to things like should domestic workers, should nannies and housekeepers be covered. Exemptions for farms have tended to melt away. Still a very important exception for smaller enterprises under $500,000 a year and not engaging in interstate commerce. That's an important exception, but the tendency has been not only for the figure to come back to Congress for, for periodic raises, but also for exemptions to be gradually trimmed away. Now, in terms of today's enforcement, what regulatory body is responsible for enforcing the minimum wage? And then what are, I guess, what are the possible penalties for an employer that just says, nah, I'm not going to pay the minimum wage? Well, the U.S. Department of Labor enforces the federal minimum wage, and the state equivalent minimum wage laws are typically enforced by state labor departments. Now, when you say an employer decides not to pay the minimum wage, a couple things can happen. First, there is a federal penalty of $1,000 per violation, which would get their attention. A lot hinges on how deliberate and how much of a gray area is going on here, because there are at least three 
ways of violating it. The, the first, at one outrageous end, there is the employer that just skips out and leaves on a Friday afternoon without paying payroll. And here, states tend to have, and quite rightly, very stringent laws saying if you promise someone a wage and then skip out without paying them, you know, lots and lots of legal bricks land on your head. At the other end, there is uh, employers who don't interpret their obligations correctly because the obligations may be somewhat mysterious. Uh, and so you look at issues like tipped workers. There are specialty rules about tip pooling and sharing that someone running a restaurant might guess wrong about whether he or she is on the right side or wrong side of the line. Very likely the penalties are going to potentially be there, but not be as strict as if the employer knew what the law was, the, the law was unambiguous, it just decided to, to violate it. And then in the middle, of course, there are ones where the violation was deliberate, but the worker knew what was going on. In other words, the worker was told, you know, here, here's such and such, may not have realized that it was, or maybe neither side realized that uh, local minimum wage was higher. So there was a violation, but it wasn't as flagrant a scoff law kind of thing. And in general, labor departments will focus on what they see as the more deliberate or flagrant. It's also worth throwing in here that the brand, the departments of government are not the only ones to worry about if you are a lawyer advising a client. Class actions can also come in, and those are especially important when you're talking about potentially a lot of workers who have all been misclassified or who the employer assumed were not subject to some minimum wage law, and then it turns out they were, because if there are hundreds of employees in that situation, then that could be a very attractive class action for someone to file, and much more expensive than the fine that you might have gotten hit with from the Labor Department. Yeah, those those would definitely be some bet the business moments there for the employers. You know, I've had the privilege of working in a lot of different states, living and working in a lot of different states in our country. And one thing that I, I never came to an appreciation of was how different the uh, minimum wage between the different states can be. And so the different states kind of factor in a variety of factors, not all the same. You know, there's the size business can play a role, the amount of hours worked per week, you know, whether or not the em- employees tipped or not. But can you walk us through some of those different variables that make the minimum wage not a uniform prospect state to state? Right. The, the federal minimum wage serves as a minimum, and relatively few workers are actually at that minimum. Uh, around the country, it's only a very small, I think it's like 3% of workers that are paid the minimum wage. So it is the state minimum wages that tend to have the bite, because uh, if both of them apply, then you've got to pay the higher one. And as you might expect, the states on the coasts with a higher cost of living and a stronger labor movement tend to have uh, higher minimum wages. And you so you find $15 in the District of Columbia, $14 in California, 13 and a half approximately in Washington state. And individual cities and counties within those states often can and do pass yet higher rates. So a lot of California cities go higher than the California rate, which is itself high. Then you go to the other end and you find five states have no minimum at all. So uh, in those states, you have self pay the federal, but you don't have a separate layer of, of state obligation. And then a bunch of other states, typically in lower cost parts of the country, have minimum wages that are bunched around or maybe a little bit higher than the federal. So the first generalization is that for currently and until federal law changes, minimum law, minimum wage law is something you, you mostly want to look at your state first because it's likely to be where the business end is for complying. And the federal law, uh, 
minimum wage, it's funny, if you are in an expensive metropolitan area like New York or uh, Washington, D.C. or Boston, you will find that it's almost impossible to find jobs that are not paying well above the federal minimum wage. And this goes for babysitters and dog walkers and and just, you know, and, and the trainees, the 18-year-old trainees and the a lot of people who are in the classic gray area categories are still getting offered well above minimum wage because you've got tight labor markets, because you simply... That, that that's what the market will bear, that the mar- almost no one is getting offered wages that low. Then again, at the opposite end, in Mississippi, I, I don't know whether these this, these are absolutely up-to-date numbers, but as of recently, the median ma- manufacturing wage, although well above the current federal minimum, was below the proposals that some have come up with, like $15 an hour. So again, looking forward, even in a state like South Carolina, less than, I think it's less than eight, of jobs are currently at the the federal minimum wage. You double that federal minimum wage and suddenly a lot of jobs move out of compliance and require the employer to make tough decisions about, you know, do we, uh, how do we uh, cope with the law no longer allowing uh, wages declared at that level? Yeah, you know, that was my big takeaway with, with the research was just how varied it was across even small differences in geographic area. And so just in New York alone, New York State, you know, you've got one rate for kind of Manhattan, and then you've got a different rate for upstate. And so, you know, if you're doing business in that state and you've got a variety of, let's say you've got a chain, you know, uh, you know, a chain restaurant or, or some type of chain laundry or, or dry cleaners or something like that, you know, you've really got to focus in uh, specifically on the location you're in. And like, you know, in the case of New York, Manhattan, you jump over a bridge and suddenly you're in a different minimum wage. And so, you know, I think that gets to be really challenging to keep up with. But I want to talk about the the baseline here. You know, you talked about uh, the different rates for different cities, different states. But right now, I think most people recognize the $7.25 per hour minimum wage from the federal government, right? But what I came to realize, you know, I knew about the uh, the tipped employees because I used to work in the restaurant industry, but there's a different rate for tipped employees. But I also learned there's another rate for employees that are young, under 90 days on the job. There's another rate for different employees that have physical, mental disabilities. There's a rate for uh, full-time student workers. There's a rate for student learner programs. So you walk us through that to kind of establish that baseline for the federal minimum. There have long been these particular exceptions, typically for categories of employees that uh, were acknowledged on all sides to have a lower productivity rate or alternatively to have other means of compensation. And and we'll get to tipped workers in a moment because it's one of the most important and interesting controversies. But these have come under tremendous pressure. And I think one good place to start is with the disabled workers exception. The developmentally disabled, for example, will very often not be able to justify for for many employers a $15 an hour wage, but there is this separate wage for disabled employment that has made it possible for them to be widely employed. And and this carve-out came to be unacceptable to many advocates of the minimum wage, both labor unions and, and some others, and they have crusaded to end it. Now, what will happen to people in those jobs, you know, I myself predict that many of them will no longer be employed as much or, or at all, and will have a different social problem than the, the one that is perceived from this. But the lower minimum wage for trainee and youngest workers was a nod to the fact that uh, most HR people will tell you that people don't begin hitting their productivity stride until sometime into a job. And particularly, of course, when they're not transferring over from a similar job, but are 18-year-olds 
So there has always been some recognition, but it's tended to be cut away to as short a period and as small aid an age group as possible. Again, to just look forward for a moment to the policy basis, many countries have tremendous problems with youth, youth unemployment in which finding that first job or two is enormously difficult. And in the European system, classically, people hold on to jobs for a long time, but people are apt to be unemployed through a lot of their 20s until they, they find that you know great sinecure or, or great perk. America did it differently. It, it used techniques like long training period and, and large younger group to improve the rate at which those parts of the American workforce were employed, but of course at the expense of not doing all the things that people might have wanted out of the minimum wage law. And so that has been carved away quite a bit. And 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 then as I say, tipped workers are in a different kind of position. The idea of the tipped wage is that you can let the employer pay significantly less, and there may have to be some showing that tipping is, in fact, in, in providing a significant amount of in, income. But we know how tipping works. Some employees are much more successful than others at getting big tips. And so you wind up with a different kind of competition between workers, which makes many people in the union movement and elsewhere uncomfortable. You wind up with the possibility that some employees do badly out of tipping for reasons that might or might not lie entirely in their control, might also apply to things like which shift they worked in, you know, when, when the, the big shippers come in in the evening. So the, the demand has been to reduce the role of the tipped minimum wage, move them toward being more conventional hourly employees. And in places that have done this, because you've seen this experiment with at the local level in places like the District of Columbia, there has not infrequently been a revolt, not just from the restaurants, but a revolt by the tipped workers themselves, who widely do not want to move to a system where all of the wait persons or all of the people helping with baggage at the airport are shifted over to a flat minimum wage because they are doing better with tips. And uh, there was a famous episode, I think it was, well, it was at one of the airports and, and with one of the bigger airlines where they said, from now on, the luggage handlers who, who uh, will greet you at curbside will be put on flat salary and you'll be invited not to tip them. And of course, you know, <laughs> they cried bloody murder. You know, this is, this is the worst thing that it happened to them. But, it, but it, it points up that the interest of workers is not always obvious because, of course, some weight people will do better. Uh, the ones who had been getting the short end of the stick on, on the tip system may well do better if you move to a service-included restaurant plan. Yeah, you know, that, that's been my observation. You know, working in the service industry, I worked with uh, colleagues, uh, peers at the restaurant that, you know, would make a ton of money, you know, on a uh, on a baseball game night. And then on other nights, you know, it was pretty dead for them. And so, you know, there's definitely an incentive when there's a lot of crowd to provide the best possible service. And so, yeah, I totally get that. You know, some of the tips they'd walk away with were, were pretty amazing when you started to uh, pile them up at the end of the night. But I want to get into the younger workers thing. This is something that's concerned me over the years. Now, you got 213, as we were talking about with tipped employees, is kind of the minimum, but there's a four 425 minimum for a uh, minimum wage for workers under 20 that worked less than 90 days on the job. And so I, w- I was wanting to ask you this, you know, my concern with this is that 
you know, when I was growing up in high school, everybody I knew in high school had a summer job. And we, you know, it was, it was one of those things you just did. And as, as I've come to discover uh, years later, I've talked with, you know, workers a little bit younger than me in the workforce. And I find out that they didn't really have that first job like you were talking about with Europe till they were much older. So they may have done like a, some volunteer work to, to build their resume to get into college. And maybe they did an internship while they were in college. But in terms of that first paid job where you're being paid to be somewhere to work for somebody else and learn, you know, showing up on time and all that kind of thing, their first real paid job was as an adult after college. And, you know, I'm seeing more and more of that. I'm having more and more of those conversations. And and to your point earlier, it uh, it definitely seems to be translating down towards a uh, lesser employment for younger workers, which I'm not sure is a good thing. What do you think about that? I think you're right about the social trend, but I would be cautious about how much of it comes from changes in minimum wage laws, because I see that too. And anecdotally, if you are talking about, for example, filling summer camp jobs used to be a staple of, you know, the way 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds might make money, especially if they were going on to college. Willingness to take those has simply dropped. And it's not always a matter of the jobs are not offered because of minimum wage. Often the the pay is there, but the inclination or the, the taste for taking them is no longer there for reasons that, again, may not be a matter of the law pressing things. The people in that age bracket often want to stay near their friends, so they don't want jobs to take them socially away unless it's something that, and, and here I'm speaking perhaps more of the college bond, but you know the, the interest in things that build a resume. And of course, this big separate debate about whether internships sometimes at high-powered places that internships that are probably worth a great deal of money in terms of future connections and earnings, should they be paid internships or should they not? We've had that debate too. So a lot of different things are going on here involving more affluent families sparing their kids certain types of experience. And if they are another level or two more affluent, sending them into experiences like internships that are thought to be good for their, their future career success. But also for people with with fewer opportunities, there will be a looking at low-paid summer or other work. And again, the depending on where you are, uh, you may be competing with 30-year-olds for some of those low-paid jobs, or if you're in one of the more expensive parts of the country, you may not be competing with them. And, and that's, as I say, the people who want entry-level jobs at uh, well above the current federal minimum in a lot of the more high-cost-of-living cities, it's not really a problem to find those. It may be a problem whether you feel you're making enough to pay rent on your own rather than living with your parents because you know the, the rents are three times as high too. But, uh, but the availability of the jobs has been pretty good over the last decade uh, since we recovered from the Great Recession. Well, you know, I want to get into that, some of those policy uh, discussions a little bit, but I want to, I want to close things out just a little bit more on sort of the uh, the legality side of this. And so, you know, to the degree that- We hope you're enjoying our conversation about the minimum wage with senior fellow from the Cato Institute, Walter Olson. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when I ask him about which law trumps during a conflict of the minimum wage. Is it the federal law or is it the state law? Our discussion later evolves as we get into future paths for Congress to increase the minimum wage, as well as a policy discussion about whether that's a good idea or not. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, everybody.